Welcome to the Health and Wellness Show on the SOT Radio Network, where we expose the lies and emphasize the truth about health in our modern world. Welcome, everybody. Today is uh, January 15th, 2016. And uh, today, as we mentioned last week, we have officially passed the one-year mark, so now we are no longer unofficially one-year-old as a show. Um, yay! So my, yeah, yay. My name is Jonathan. I'll be your host for today. Uh, joining me from all across the planet today, we have an almost full complement of uh, co-hosts, uh, Doug, Tiffany, Gabby, and Elliot. Hi, guys. Hello. Hi. Hello. So we have an interesting topic uh, today. Uh, according to Healthline.com, there are an estimated 121 million people worldwide who suffer from depression, affecting, affecting as many as 1 in 10 Americans, and the diagnoses are growing at an alarming rate. Um, depression is also correlated with higher rates of other negative health outcomes, including obesity, heart disease, stroke, etc. There's also social factors, higher rates of unemployment, uh, divorce, sleep disorders, lack of education, um, and a lot of things that uh, that come from that. And so we're going to talk about uh, depression today, um, kind of, you know, what it is, what it's understood to be, what it might also be, um, because uh, as we've discussed before, there's a lot more um, uh, that is held in the complexity of, of human mental uh Conditions uh, than just listed in the DSM. Um, so today we're gonna we're gonna take a look at uh, a lot of those things and some various kind of forms of depression and just talk about those. So uh, I guess we'll jump right in and uh, our first uh, aspect of this, which is appropriate because I just came in from snow blowing the driveway, is uh, <laughs> seasonal depression. <laughs> so. Um, <laughs> It's it's an interesting phenomenon. I don't know. Had you guys ever uh, experienced that? I did last year. Actually, I, I got it bad last year in February, and it, it was mm-hmm. weird. It came out of nowhere. I just felt down for like three weeks and just couldn't shake it. And so I, I feel like I wasn't also, you know, I wasn't up on my vitamin D. Um, I wasn't mm-hmm. really actively trying to get sunlight. I was inside the house a lot. So I'm sure that there mm-hmm. were other contributing factors, but have you guys ever mm-hmm. had that? Yeah. For example, oh no, I just want to say that. For example, it is something that I just first noticed when I first came to live in Europe, because before I was living in Costa Rica, and uh, there is not such thing as winter, nor summer. It's just dry season or wet season, and we have the same amount of daylight the whole year. You know, never changes. And I did notice that, yeah, in Europe, when it gets darker, it's time to be moody and sad. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, I think I've definitely suffered from the winter blues um, occasionally. You know, I've, I'd, I'd never, it never really got to the point of what, what I would necessarily call depression. Like, I wasn't really kind of overwhelmed by this negative feeling or anything. But, yeah, I've definitely, you know, in the wintertime, it kind of things get a little bit more you know, uh, insular, I guess, and not uh, not as bright and chipper as they might be in the summer. Yeah, I think I've been depressed regardless of what season it is, but I haven't really noticed, like, any strong depression just in the winter months. 
I mean, mm. I de- definitely notice that I miss the sun with the outside and just have the sun's rays on me, and that can get a little depressing when it's all gloomy and cold and rainy mm. or snowing. But um, I don't, I don't think I've had seasonal depression versus just regular depression. <laughs> yeah, regular yeah. depression is bad enough. Yeah. Yeah, I I tend to sleep a lot more in the winter. Um, mm-hmm. In the winter winter months, I I can even get about ten hours or twelve hours every single day. Whereas wow. in the summer, uh, yeah, in the summer, you know, I can, I can do with about seven seven to eight hours, and that that will do me fine. Um, I think like um, like Tiff said, it's missing the sun. <laughs> That's one of the things, and also because it's it's too cold to go outside a lot of the time, so um, so yeah, it's probably got a, a lot to do with the lack of vitamin D as well. Yeah. Um, I wouldn't say necessarily depression, but I'm definitely more happy in the summer. <laughs> you know, I wonder because it often is sort of. Uh, uh, people will say it's kind of a vitamin D thing because you're not getting sunlight, but given what we heard from uh, Jack Cruz on that show about the necessity of getting light hitting the eye and, um, you know, keeping that uh, circadian clock going. I wonder if it's more about that because, you know, in the, in the wintertime, even if you go outside, you're not getting a lot of skin exposure to sunlight. Um, but you might, it might be more um, to do with actually the light hitting the eye and, you know, keeping that um, kind of circadian clock going. That, I, I, I wonder if that might be more what's going on there than the actual vitamin D issue. That is interesting because after that, after that interview, I started to do his recommendations. Mm. And um, right, like somewhere around December, I stopped and I got sad. And I was wondering, was it the chicken or the egg first? (laughs) Mm. Because I stopped doing the exercises that I got depressed or because I was depressed, I was not doing the exercises. Oh, yeah. <laughs> well, it's good that you brought up that Jack because I was going to mention that, too. Uh, in this article, Sot is called Light Therapy is More Effective Than Prozac in Treating Depression. Mm-hmm. So it really reinforces like, how important full-spectrum light is. And in that interview with Jack Cruz, he really stressed how it's important to get sunlight in your eyes, especially first thing in the morning, so you can turn on that clock, because um, there is melatonin that's made in your eye, like referred to as ocular melatonin, and if you don't get that ocular melatonin going, um, the pineal gland is not going to be able to make melatonin in proper amounts when it gets dark, so that Mm -hmm. uh, leads to poor sleep. But in the article, is that um, the researchers got some studies so they put together and they exposed them 30 minutes a day of full spectrum light using a clock. And mm-hmm. another group just got Prozac by itself, but another group got uh, light and Prozac. And they noticed the best remission here in the light and Prozac group. But how much of that is due to like the uh, the placebo effect of, you know, taking a medication. But they also noticed that there was, you know, a remission in depression in the light-only group. And mm. the light-only group remission rate was 38%, and the light and Prozac was 58%. So it wasn't really that far behind, but it mm. shows how important 
part is just to make your mood better, among other things. Yeah. Mm. Those light boxes are interesting, actually. I've seen I've, I've seen those things before. You can kind of like just set one up next to your computer monitor or something like that, and they recommend kind of keeping it on so that it shines. You know, you're not looking directly at it, but it's shining kind of almost across your eyes, kind of thing. So you um, so you, your eyes are being exposed to that light. Um, yeah, I mean, it's interesting. They do they do make claims that it can help with uh, seasonal affective disorder. So it, it, you know, I think people who are kind of suffering. Uh, from that or tend to get it really bad, it might be worth looking into and, and, and trying that out. Yeah, there's also something interesting that they um, mentioned in the article. I haven't managed to look it up yet, but um, they mentioned using full-spectrum light bulbs um, mm. instead of using normal light bulbs. And I'm not sure what the difference is between the full-spectrum light bulb and the normal light bulb or where you would get one of those, but apparently um, it works in a similar way to the to the light box. Yeah, I think that's what the light box is based off of. It's just giving you full spectrum light, so you're getting kind of the entire spectrum of yeah. uh, of different light waves instead of um, you know conventional light bulbs tend to be kind of one end of the spectrum. And uh, yeah, yeah I, I, you wouldn't want to use full spectrum at night though, because then that can interfere with uh, with melatonin production. So might be a, a situation where you have to be kind of switching your light bulbs all the time. As soon as the sun goes down, you have to switch out your light bulbs or, or have two different lamps kind of thing, one with a full spectrum, one without. I don't know. Um, I guess this, uh, I was going to say, maybe maybe before we, we get too far into this topic, we should... Uh, Defined because a couple of us had said at the beginning here that you felt down, but maybe not full-on depression. Uh, and Tiffany, I think that you had mentioned you you have felt you have felt it kind of full-on before. Um, and I I feel like I have you know maybe a couple times in my life, but never mm. necessarily chronic chronically. Um, mm. So uh, I was just looking up you know the uh, the standard definition here is feelings of severe despondency and dejection. Um, self-doubt creeps in and that swiftly turns to depression. Uh, now that seems a little more normal to me, but what's interesting is I'm, you know, aside from I'm having a hard time finding a, a uh, concise definition of what would be considered clinical depression. Uh, the mm, one, um, the, yeah. Okay. This is uh, from the DSM, the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual that the psychiatrists and psychologists use. So they define like major depression as basically nine things. The first thing is you have a depressing most of the day, nearly every day, uh, based on your subjective report, like I feel sad or I feel empty, or observations made by other people. Um, and they note that in kids, children, and adolescents, it can be uh, an irritable mood. The second thing is a markedly diminished interest in pleasure or pleasure in all or almost all activities most of the day, nearly every day. The third thing is a significant weight loss when not dieting or weight gain or decrease an increase in appetite nearly every day. Uh, the fourth thing is insomnia or hypersomnia, 
nearly every day. Fifth is psychomotor agitation or retardation nearly every day. Sixth is fatigue or loss of energy. Uh, seventh is feelings of worthlessness or excessive or inappropriate guilt. And eighth is diminished ability to think or concentrate or indecisiveness nearly every day. And the ninth is uh, current thoughts of death, not just fear of dying, but suicidal ideation, sometimes with or without a specific plan. So that's how the, the professionals define major depression. That's interesting. Is there a criteria to meet the diagnosis, like more than half or, you know, five or more? Of those five months? or more. Okay. Yeah, All right. Five or more of those symptoms longer than two weeks, and it's a significant change from how you were before. Mm-hmm. Huh. Because I feel irrational guilt all the time, <laughs> but it's not necessarily not necessarily up to five of those points. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So maybe you'd be more in the uh, sometimes down category, but not depressed. Right. Yeah, it's, it's something we were talking about when we had our pre-show uh, call that I thought was just kind of interesting that. Um, you know, there is such, uh, and I wonder if we could talk about this a little bit, uh, there is such a, a push towards feeling great all the time. You know, uh, mm-hmm. there's so many antidepressants on the market, but not only that, there's so many, um, you know, self-help modalities, which is fine and good, um, but, you know, I think that it's been kind of taken over the top a little bit in the last, geez, well, I don't know, since like the 70s, probably. Mm-hmm. Um, but the idea that you should feel great all the time if you're a little bit sad then something is off um you know aside from the obvious things like you know if somebody close to you passes away then you know you have a grieving period and i think everybody pretty much understands that but it's still like um psychiatrists are so quick now to prescribe antidepressants for you know what i think is is just a normal um part of life uh and you know, like we were talking about, sometimes you look at, you know, the state of the world uh, and you just really read the news for, for 10 minutes and you can feel like you might be clinically depressed. Um, but, you know, I'm, I'm curious about the uh, the differences, you know, between that and what pushes a person over the edge to getting into that state of chronic depression that lasts for more than two weeks, more than a month you know, more than six months um, to the point where it really becomes a detriment to your way of life. Um, because I, I can say I feel down quite a bit, you know, um, not chronically, but, you know, things happen. And, or, you know, like you see the latest uh, bombing of, of Palestine and, and you feel, mm-hmm. you know, angry, you feel angry and depressed, you know, and until you're able to process that emotion um, or, you know, it, that's just an example of something, you know, from the news, things that are happening these days, but pretty much anything in your life can get you to feel that way. And I think it's more healthy to deal with that instead of popping a pill and trying to erase it. Um, but I guess mm-hmm. my main question in spurring this discussion is where, where do you think is the crossover between people feeling what we would consider normal human emotion and then feeling chronically depressed? Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's a really good question. Um, 
And I think uh, I think you bring up a good point that you know it's hard to look around at the state of the world and not feel negative about it and and maybe get depressed and and uh, you know maybe have some difficulty kind of dealing with it. But I think maybe the uh, you know maybe one thing that the DSM is actually good for um, is, is kind of looking at those the, those uh, categories for depression. Like if you're not taking any pleasure in life whatsoever, um, and you know things even in your own kind of microcosm aren't bringing you any joy or, uh, you know, you're listless, you're suffering from insomnia or, you know, whatever any of those categories might be. I, I guess it's, it's a matter of kind of looking at, um, you know, how, how you're actually, if you're reacting to, to what you're seeing in, in a more healthy manner, like can you look at the state of the world and kind of get, get pissed off or depressed for a little while but kind of come out of it and maybe, you know, um, feel a little bit more hopeful about it, about uh, possibilities, and maybe have it galvanize you to kind of um, make your own life a little bit better, or you know, spread the word, um, or if you just kind of sink into it and, and kind of dwell on it. Um, I don't know. It, it's a very good question. I don't. I don't know if there's a, a hard and fast rule. But we know, for example, that these criteria for diagnosis of depression is just symptoms. You know, signs and symptoms. But what mm. is it really the underlying root? We know it could be a combination of factors. It could be the state of the world. It could be a person's uh, own vulnerability towards that, you know, a temperament, you know, that makes them predisposed for depression. It could be a chemical imbalance, you know, toxicity, um, nutrition deficit, you know. And I wonder, you know, what, you know, what is the right combination of factors for each individual in order in order to be, you know, diagnosed with depression? But um, I think you know that's an important point as well. Like symptoms, signs, but yes, why? Why you know why? <laughs> it mm. should be the question. Yeah, that definitely should be the question. And I, and I also you know. Maybe you need to look at it in in terms of uh and you know we haven't actually gotten into this topic too much yet, but if some of the other causes are present, like if your diet is you know the standard American diet, then you can probably be pretty sure that that has something to do with your depression, and it's not just a matter of looking at the state of the world and and having uh you know issues with that, or uh you know if you haven't addressed things like toxicity or um, infections or, or something along those lines, you know, maybe maybe those are steps that you have to take to kind of, you know, just to, to be able to assess where you're at and whether that kind of, uh, you know, these depressive moods are maybe, maybe have a, a cause other than looking at the world around you. Mm-hmm. And I just wonder as well, um, what if you... Um if a person addresses the biological factors, nutrition deficit, or an environmental toxicity that makes them predisposed to manifest a pathological depression, maybe if they address those, they might be they might get in touch better with their feelings. And yes, they will still be sad, but it is not something that will completely overcome overcome them. They will actually be more in tune with their feelings and feel more empathetic towards other people, towards you know what is happening in the world and and so forth. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah, yeah, I think that's true. 
I think one thing too is Doug, like you mentioned, you know, if, if there's no joy, uh, no inspiration whatsoever in your life, then something is going on. It's kind of like we talked about before the show too, that, uh, you know, you can feel down that something happened. Let's say, you know, somebody crashed into your car and now you have a, a, a giant payment or something. Those kind of things, you know, they're depressing, but you still, you still have, uh, things in your life that you can be interested in or fascinated by. Um, but there, when you cross over into the area of absolutely nothing is interesting, nothing is fascinating, you can find no joy around you, then I, I would consider that sort of a, a, I guess, a clinical condition, so to speak. Mm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. It just reminds me now um, how some people say that depression is ang- repressed anger. Yeah. Mm. So, yeah. That's it's like it's like anger turned in on the self, kind of thing. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I mean that kind of we were talking about this before the show too, where we were talking about uh, you know uh, a, a lot of the the subcultures now that you see with uh, like the youth kind of have this idealized um, they, they almost they kind of idealized depression like it's something to be kind of uh, uh, modeled you know it's kind of like the uh, the whole tortured artist um, meme that uh that these people seem to be thriving on and i think you know jonathan brought up that it, it just seems to be these kids don't have kind of a healthy outlet for their mm-hmm. um for for their feelings and it, it could just be kind of like a an anger at, at the, the state of society and that they don't kind of have a means of expressing themselves so they kind of they end up turning this kind of in on themselves and kind of uh just exuding this kind of like dark depressed rebel type image you know, we were talking about like the emo kids or like the goths and all, all all these other, you know, there's probably a million different subcultures that I'm not even aware of at this point. But um, it, it, it's interesting, that idea that it's just kind of internalized anger. Yeah, maybe I think. Maybe they have hope for the future, you know, instead of mm. expressing, you know, that those feelings, that anger, they just like turn them against themselves, like kind of self-destruction, you know, behaviors. Mm-hmm. I think one of the problems is, is that um, if someone hasn't been or hasn't experienced what we would call um, clinical depression, um, I think it's really difficult because in our culture, we're um, flooded with these um, messages that we that we should constantly aspire to be happy, to be um, mm-hmm. you know to be filled with these positive emotions. And if you're not filled with these positive emotions, then there must be something wrong with you. You must be depressed or or, or something like that. You know, we we're not very um, uh, we're not very skilled at actually expressing our negative emotions, and we um, we perceive them as uh, bad. If you know what I mean, we see them as bad things that we should never have to experience. When in fact, negative emotions are, are you know, they're, they're a very important um, aspect of our existence and our reality. And we, uh, I guess, we're told in in our culture that that we shouldn't be feeling these things um, to some extent, you know. And so I think yeah. sometimes people can be so. Um, so um, bogged down 
with these negative emotions, whether it be um, something to do in something to do with their personal lives, or um, or at the state of the world and society, and they can identify that as depression. But then, I guess it comes. This is where the line is sort of blurred. How do you? I guess it comes back to you. What you were saying, Jonathan. How do you sort of um, clearly define the word depression? And as you said. Mm-hmm. Um, like for those of us who haven't actually gone through that, um, it's very hard to imagine. But as you were describing before, and you just des- described them um, before the show, um, this this lack of interest in in anything, like the colour has been taken out of of, of life essentially. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I guess it's it's important to just keep in mind that you know the normal human experience is to experience a whole range of emotions. So sure, to have those highs and blissful happiness and have fun and, you know, whatever the case may be, but at the same time, you know, you do have your downs. You know, it's not normal to experience this this bliss and happiness all the time. And, you know, I think that's the, the myth that kind of gets a lot of people on these medications, that, you know, there are, they're, they're having down times. Um, and I think, you know, having healthy means of, of, of expressing that and dealing with that um, is, is much more, uh, you know, healthy than um, to try and ignore it and push it out and, and, and label it as bad, like you were saying, uh, Elliot. So, yeah, I think, you know, it, we're, we're, as humans, are capable of, of experiencing a whole range of emotions, and maybe that's uh, part of being human. Yeah. I think that's where knowledge comes into it, too, because if you don't know that you're supposed to experience a range of emotions when you do feel bad in this society where they say that everybody should be happy and if you don't, something's wrong with you, then, you know, maybe maybe that's a good thing if you know that that kind of thing is normal. And plus, you know, how normal is it to be well-adjusted to this sick world that we're living in anyway? <laughs> yeah. Exactly. Yeah. 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 It makes me think of like the uh, the generational idea. Like you know, we've talked about this before in relation to uh, physical diseases. That there are many more now um, diseases of the modern world, but also um, you know mental illnesses. Um, I don't know. I'm trying to think of a good way to describe what I'm thinking here. That like, if you go back to say the 50s or earlier, um, there was, uh, there was in general, I think less of a connection to emotions, uh, in a certain sense. Mm -hmm. So you would say, you know, men were men and you just act like a man and you just suck it up and then you never deal with any kind of emotion whatsoever. Um, but at the same time, there is this other side of the, of the rainbow where, uh, children were not so much, uh, pardon my French here, but like shitheads as they are now, (laughs) um, you know, like kids, you'd, you'd get a job when you were 12, you know, and learn responsibility by the time you were 15. And now there's this, this artificially extended childhood, like into the, into the twenties, um, even into the thirties in some cases, uh, yeah, um, you know, yeah. Uh, and I, I think it probably is uh, combined factors of all the stuff that we've talked about in past shows, um, you know, diet, processed foods, uh, toxins in the environment, um, 
as well as, uh, you know, the inundation of uh, signals from the media, um, not to mention just the EMF uh, signals that are all around us, um, but the, the message that comes through from the media and from all of the television shows and the entertainment that's on the Internet, which is just, like, totally vapid. Um, mm. You know, I think I think a lot of that has contributed to the degradation of the mental health of young people uh, because this is a thing that I cite a lot when talking about young people. It's kind of an extreme example, but during the colonial era, there was a, a kid named Daniel Farragut who was a, a Navy captain of a boat, and he was 12 years old. And he huh. was he was the captain he was the captain of grown men um, in the yeah. colonial army, and wow. it's like you know that would never happen now. You know you can't like walk a kid down the street without a helmet on. No. <laughs> so. Yeah, yeah when, I read, so I wonder, when I used to read read novels, I was surprised, you know, how people were so mature or supposedly so mature at such a young age. Yeah. Yeah. Although it is a chicken and egg kind of phenomenon, right? Where like the kids have this kind of extended childhood and sense of entitlement because of, you know, the uh the degradation of diet and the environment around us or, you know, is it, it you know, do do kids become um kind of this entitled because of I don't know. I don't know what I'm trying to say, but it's just kind of like it's 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 like a chicken and an egg. It's kind of like what did the society breed these kids or is uh, is it more of a physical phenomenon? I don't know. No, yeah, it would make it would make sense. And also, I was thinking about the educational system, you know, and also conditions of yeah. today where there is basically young people cannot find jobs. You know, at least in Spain, there's a whole generation of people that are basically jobless. You know, mm -hmm. have the future. You know, and Paul uh, has been bombarded with vaccines, with toxicity, with you know, crap food. Uh, it's just like the odds are really, really against, you know, people nowadays. Now there's a reason to be depressed. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, it's interesting to bring up the whole generational thing. There was a really interesting article published on SOT. Um, it was back uh, February 2014, um, originally uh, at the website ancestralnutrition.com. And it was called Why Your Ancestors Didn't Have Anxiety or, De or Depression and You Do. And it's bringing in kind of the dietary aspect of it, how, you know, um, the, the trend in kind of low fat uh, has, has kind of bred this, this kind of epidemic of depression and uh, anxiety and mood disorders and that sort of thing. And they were saying that uh, uh, anxiety disorders weren't even defined or diagnosed until the 1980s. Um, and they kind of draw a, a parallel with the fact that, uh, now it's like skim milk, low-fat cheese, and 0% yogurt are easier to get than their full-fat counterparts. And they talk about a lot of how um, omega fats, uh, specifically omega-3s, are kind of so important for brain structure and anti-inflammation uh, in the brain um, and cholesterol and all those sorts of things and how important they are for uh, the brain to be structurally sound and function properly. So they're kind of, you know, it, it's not conclusive, obviously, but the uh the the parallel is pretty striking that you know what we have is a, a people who are nutritionally deficient in these kind of omega threes have a brain that isn't functioning properly and lo and behold you have this epidemic of mood disorders 
So it, it's a very interesting parallel. The, the the article goes into a lot more detail on it. Yes, and you can see nowadays on the elderly, very often, you know, who have, who have you know, Alzheimer's, Parkinson's, mm-hmm. and very low cholesterol. They are on several prescription drugs, and they're often depressed. You know. Yeah. Yeah, that's like it couldn't be otherwise. You know. Just not because of the uh, social connections that are being, you know, getting much worse as uh, in our modern society, but only from, you know, from the prescription drugs alone, lowering cholesterol drugs. You know, how an elderly person doesn't have a chance to, you know, make good chemistry with with such low fat diets. You know? Mm-hmm. Elderly or young, you know, it's, it's everybody kind of across yeah. the board. Yeah. I mean, it's I ironic a, a that big we problem is that psychiatrists and psychologists think that the brain is separate from the body, or at least they treat people like it is. I mean, I've heard mm-hmm. psychiatrists say, oh, it doesn't matter really what you eat. You have a chemical imbalance, and that's why you're depressed, or that's why you have this or that mental illness. But if you consider that the brain is made up of 60% fat and you're not getting the right uh, fats like the omega threes or saturated fats that your brain needs, or the cholesterol. There's no way that your brain can function. You might not be clinically depressed, but you might have, you know, difficulty concentrating. You can't think straight. Just anything that can affect your your brain functioning. You know, if you're not having the right diet, it's not going to be met. Yeah. Yeah. Well, one like such a common. It just seems like such a common sense connection. If you have a chemical imbalance, which I'm sure in you know in many cases is the case, that's why you're feeling a certain way is because your neurotransmitters, which are you know built from amino acids, are not functioning properly. But you know that you get the makeup of your body by what you put in your body. So saying that it has no connection to what you eat, I just like it. Just seems like such a common sense thing to me, and, and how somebody who had studied that. Uh, could miss that. Um, you know, I, 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 I want to feel like I'm being arrogant, but I don't think that I am. It just, like, it seems kind of straightforward. Yeah, I the whole imbalance thing just seems like a cop-out, just like some safe, pat answer you can give somebody who asks you if you're, they're sitting in your office like, why am I depressed? And you just say that because it's easy and you don't have to really go into any details, but there's really no blood tests or anything that tells you how much serotonin you have or how much dopamine you have. And there's no normal ranges for any of those things anyway. So I think it's a cop-out to even just say that in the first place, that somebody has a chemical imbalance. I mean, depression or mental illness has many different contributing factors to it. And just say... Mm -hmm. I mean, even though it could be true that they are chemically imbalanced, but it's not just your brain is just some separate entity disconnected from the rest of you and these neurotransmitters aren't working correctly. Everything is tied together. And if Mm -hmm. your gut is imbalanced, that can cause a chemical imbalance in your brain. Mm -hmm. And considering that serotonin is mostly found in the gut and not as much in the brain anyway. Yeah. Well, it's interesting. There's a, there's a, another article on SOT that I'll bring up called uh, Depression. It's not your serotonin. Um, written by Dr. Kelly Brogan um, and was originally published on Green Med Info. 
And this, it's a long article, but it is really, really revealing. And, and, and she basically goes into um, how the entire myth of serotonin has only come up because of the whole pharmaceutical industry. And that basically they found these uh, serotonin uh, uh, reuptake inhibitors um, were kind of discovered. And then all of a sudden, lo and behold, uh, depression is a result of low serotonin, whereas there's actually very, very little evidence for that and a lot of evidence that that actually isn't the case. Um, so it's, it's basically kind of a myth that everything, you know, our entire society is hinged on this. Like, you know, the average person on the street thinks that depression is because of, uh, of low serotonin. And, you know, a lot of people will try more natural remedies for that and take things uh, to kind of encourage the production of, of serotonin. Whereas, you know, if you really look deeply into it, there, there isn't a, a heck of a lot of evidence that it is low serotonin. You know, there are a lot of people who are depressed who have high serotonin. Um, and, you know, like you were saying, Tip, there isn't even a baseline of what normal actually is. Like, what is the normal level of serotonin or dopamine or any of these other kind of neurotransmitters? So it, it, I think you're right. It is kind of like an easy answer. You know, somebody comes into a doctor's office who's depressed, and they're kind of like they pull out the prescription pad because, well, obviously you're low in serotonin. You know, you're not tested for your serotonin levels or anything like that. Um, but that's that's the answer, and you know these, these drugs have a lot of, uh, of of harmful side effects and things too. So there's there's a really um, bad consequences of this kind of prevailing myth. Well, it reminds me of the story about Robin Williams. You know, uh, mm. the story with Karen Assad. We said Robin Williams was on antidepressant drugs with black box warning at the time of his suicide. You know. He was, take, he was taking um, a drug called Nirtazapine and one which is an antipsychotic called Seroquel. At least they found trace amounts of, uh, of that in his body. And, uh, and it reminds me how often, you know, these drugs, they cause a chemical imbalance. You know, like people didn't have a chemical imbalance to begin with. They were mm. just feeling depressed. When you're given these prescription drugs, and they end up with a chemical imbalance that makes them to commit suicide, among other things, you know. Mm -hmm. so, how bad for a drug? Yeah, they're really messing in areas that they that that isn't fully understood. Um, to start taking a drug that messes with um, the the balance of, uh, of of neurotransmitters when really there isn't a clear picture of what's going on there um, is extremely dangerous. Like, yeah, the fact that, that so many of these psych, uh, psychiatric drugs actually come with a warning of suicide ideation, like that right there should be a pretty strong red flag, you know, that maybe it isn't best to be distributing these things like candy, you know, giving them out to children, no less, like children under five. I think that's the new emerging market for, uh, for psychiatric drugs, which is just mind-blowingly idiotic. Um, yeah, so it, it's just crazy. It's disturbing. And I have... Yeah, yeah I, no, I was just going to say it, it is really disturbing that this has become um, the norm um, among the majority of the population to think that it's normal to be taking tablets to alter your brain chemistry um, while they're well aware of the possible side effects of suicide ideation and uh, murderous behavior, hmm. um, you know, seizures. <laughs> you know the list just goes on. Um, surely there's there's a a, a safer way. <laughs> yeah. You know, 
Yeah, yeah even if the, these uh, antidepressants didn't have a warning for suicidal ideation on them, I mean, I mean that's bad enough, and it's actually listed. You always get like this little information sheet when you get a, a drug from the pharmacy, mm-hmm. and I don't think a lot of people read them. Or maybe they no. might have read them, they scare it off, and then some people say, just don't read the side effects. I heard people say that. Don't read those side effects. That'll just scare you. <laughs> That's what people no, tell me. I won't, read the label. I won't read the side effects because otherwise I will not take the drug. And I have answered them that. Maybe you should read them then. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's bad enough that they do have these warnings for suicide. But even if they didn't, the fact is is that they really don't work. I mean, they've been, you know, in studies, they've been working no better than a placebo. And just mm-hmm. from the people that I've worked with, um, I think a lot of it is a placebo effect because a, a lot of the people that I've worked with, they've been on, like, numerous medications, like a bunch mm-hmm. of different antidepressants. They'll try one. And they'll get all hopeful and say, oh, maybe this will work. This will be the thing that will make me feel better. And, you know, the doctors will tell them, well, you know, wait two or three weeks, and then you'll you'll notice the difference. And they take them, and I say, well, how do you feel now you started this new drug? And they say, oh, I feel better. And then I'm just thinking in the back of my mind, okay, how long is this going to last? And then lo and behold, like a couple months later, they feel just as bad as they did before or maybe even worse. So, Mm-hmm. They just jump from pill to pill to pill and hoping that the next one will be the one that will save them or help them. And mm-hmm. it never does. Yeah. yeah. We are so that was to find, you know, the easy answer with your pill, you know, we should be asking more about why, you know, why am I different? Yeah, exactly. Probably the first thing that should happen is a dietary assessment. That's yeah, right, um, there yeah. was an there was an article on um on sot.net and it's uh it's titled Antidepressants simply don't work on most patients. Study finds. And it's um it's from Natural News and it's written by a guy called Ethan Huff. And he basically talks about this study. Um it was published in the jur- journal of um American uh, American Medical Soci- Association. And um, and basically, it says that the study clarifies the benefit of antidepressants on those with varying degrees of depression. Um, the researchers administered uh, the Hamilton Depression Rating Scale questionnaires to 718 people who fell across the depression spectrum. Um, study facilitators gave participants either an antidepressant or a placebo, or a placebo for at least six weeks. And following a second evaluation, the only participants who demonstrated any measurable improvements were those falling into the very severe category. So basically, everyone else who didn't fall into the very severe category out of 718 people um, basically showed no improvement whatsoever. Um, and it <laughs> this bit I found really funny. Um, afterwards, it goes on to say, antidepressant apologists were quick to defend the drugs, emphasizing that if current antidepressants are not working for people on the milder end of the spectrum, then drug companies must devise custom antidepressants that will work for those milder conditions. So basically, rather than coming to the very logical conclusion that the antidepressants simply don't work, <laughs> they're talking about devising 
more antidepressants, <laughs> but um, yeah. but custom custom ones. And uh, supposedly <laughs> these ones will work. So basically, <laughs> just spew out more products. Uh, I, I don't I, I don't know if these guys actually believe what they're saying. Um, <laughs> I just think it's it's really sad to see. Yeah. I mean, it's basically they're always looking through the lens of how can we make more money? It's like, oh, well, this study shows that our drugs aren't working, so clearly we need more drugs. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. We have a a question in the chat here uh, about, it says, what about oxytocin? Maybe instead of increasing serotonin, oxytocin is the better answer. Um, And I think that that's a good... uh, a good question, and I'm uh, vaguely familiar that oxytocin is uh, sort of what's referred to as the love chemical, and that's what you that's what you get pumped in your in your brain when you feel love or a connection with someone. Um, mm-hmm. So, I mean, <clears throat> I think that that would be a good tie-in to the idea that uh, that social connections and relationships are really one of the best um, way. You know, aside from the obvious uh, dietary connections that we've been talking about one of the best ways to deal with this is to have uh, a network around you, uh, whether it's family or friends, so people that you genuinely connect with and that you have fun with and uh, and spend time with, that that can be a really effective antidote to depression. Yeah, I think that that's true. Um, although, you know, if the pharmaceuticals get a hold of that kind of information, I'm sure we'll have a an oxytocin-boosting uh, <laughs> drug on the market soon. Rather than just, you know, uh, yeah. increasing, like, you know, in, increasing your sense of social connection, getting out there, hanging out with friends, family, that kind of thing, which is a natural way of boosting oxytocin. Um, yeah, no, there, there must be a, a drug. There's got to be something we can, we can take that would do that. Doug, I think they've already done that. Um, there's actually a nasal spray. It's oxytocin nasal spray, um, and you basically stick it up your nose and sniff it. Um, <laughs> apparently, it has the same effect. I don't quite quite see how, how it would work there. <laughs> yeah. 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 And it's interesting that we decrease more oxytocin with uh, vagal stimulation to breathing mm. exercises, singing, yeah. you know, connecting with people. But still, the industry, their solution is either to make a drug out of oxytocin or to actually make an implant or an electrical stimulation device to stimulate mm. the vagus nerve. This just comes back to, you know, not the balls of us. Yeah. Yeah. No, I mean, if the, if the pharmaceutical, you know, the companies don't have a way to make money off of it, then it won't get promoted. So the idea that they would go out there and tell everybody to, to get more social connection and, you know, hang out with your friends and your family or do breathing exercises to stimulate your vagus nerve and stuff. Yeah, of course they're not going to do that. They're going to come up with a pill instead. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, there is yeah, a Nina pill actually in the, oh, oh, Sorry, ahead, I was going to say in the, in the, in the comments here, uh, Nina said that, that the oxytocin thing makes sense because it's been found that, you know, hugging pets and petting pets, uh, um, hugging people actually helps people feel better, um, you know, and, and, and I've had that experience as well when I'm feeling down or something like that. If I give a, give a friend a hug or something like that, there definitely is an immediate shift, and it probably does have to do with, like, oxytocin. Uh, really. So maybe uh, the cure for depression is hugs. <laughs> or pets. Yeah. 
I was uh, I had seen a, a while back that there's a a pillow that you can get that's kind of like you know like a body pillow, but that has um, it has like a bladder inside it that inflates and deflates so it, it breathes. Huh. Um, and it, it has like uh, a little heater so it's like it's warm and then it breathes up and down and so you snuggle with this thing and it's it's like being close to another living. Um, and you know if if you don't have <laughs> If you don't have any friends to hug, you could get a pillow like that, I suppose. Sounds <laughs> <laughs> like it might be a poor substitute. Yeah. yeah, that's sad that people would have to resort to that. That's like those Japanese guys marrying their inflatable dolls. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Dolls. I thought the same thing. <laughs> it's like, get a dog. There are, there are 7 million people out there, you know, that's fine. <laughs> yeah, right. Yeah. Well, let's try. So we've kind of bounced around a little bit, and we've talked about the physical and the emotional uh, connections here. And uh, I'm curious. So let's talk a little bit about the inflammation uh, connection, and uh, that's I think obviously directly tied to the uh, to the dietary uh, practices. But um, there's this interesting article. Uh, and saw it called Depression is an Allergic Reaction to Inflammation. Um, so I'll just read a, a bit here. It says, new research is revealing that many cases of depression are caused by an allergic reaction to inflammation. Um, inflammation is our immune system's natural response to injuries, infections, or foreign compounds. When triggered, the body pumps various cells and proteins to the site throughout the bloodstream, including cytokines, a class of proteins that facilitate intracellular communication. It also happens that people suffering from depression are loaded with cytokines. Uh, inflammation is caused by obesity, high sugar diets, high quantities of trans fats, unhealthy diets in general, and other causes. Um, so by treating the, infl- the inflammatory symptoms of depression rather than the neurological ones, researchers and doctors are opening up an exciting new dimension in the fight against what has become a global epidemic, writes Caroline Williams of The Guardian, uh, the good news is that the few clinical trials done so far have found that adding anti-inflammatory medicines to antidepressants not only improves symptoms, it also increases the proportion of people who respond to treatment, although more trials will be needed to confirm this. Uh, there's also some evidence that omega-3 and curcumin and extract of turmeric might have similar effects. Um, and then they just kind of go on to, you know, talk about inflammation a little bit more. But I, I find it interesting that they say that adding anti-inflammatory medicines to antidepressants would be the solution because that just sounds mm-hmm. like piling, you know, bad on top of bad right there. Um, yeah. And that, you know, a, a dietary approach would be much more uh, effective. You know, instead of continuing to eat a, a high-sugar, uh, high-carb diet, which is going to cause that inflammation, um, you know, and then taking a, taking a pill to counteract that, uh, you have a much better chance at, at having a long-lasting solution by changing your practices overall. Mm-hmm. I think the the inflammation theory is very interesting, and there is like you know, it can, you know, there is lots of facts facts that support it. But I also like I think it is important to keep asking the question why why am I inflamed? You know, mm. because it, it, yes, there is a huge uh, dietary component. But we have seen that people who have, for example, mercury toxicity could have inflammation in the brain, or mm-hmm. people who have a generalized infection 
can have depression as well because it's a lot of inflammation, you know, to care, to be carrying a chronic infection causes a lot of inflammation. Mm-hmm. So, yes, that is interesting. Yeah, it is really interesting. And I remember um, I was, uh, I had a training with a, a naturopathic doctor at one point, and he was talking about uh, St. John's wort. And St. John's wort is, uh, is an herb that um, is used in treatments of depression, and many studies have been found to be very, uh, very helpful for depression. And it's interesting because um, a lot of the scientific community have been studying um, St. John's wort and, and trying to find the mechanism by which it increases serotonin. Because, you know, the, the model, the serotonin model is so fully ingrained that everybody's kind of like, well, you know, if it's helping with depression, then obviously it's raising serotonin. And they've been completely, they've failed at finding that. But what they are kind of overlooking, according to this uh, naturopathic doctor, is that St. John's Ward is actually a strong anti-inflammatory, particularly in the brain. Um, huh. So that that is much more likely to be the mechanism of action, that it has this kind of anti-inflammatory um, effect. Uh, similarly, the whole thing with fish oil as well. Um, you know, a lot of people, because the brain structure is primarily DHA, um, a, a lot of people are more uh, emphasizing DHA for any kind of mental issue, including depression. But in the studies, what they actually find, particularly with kids and ADHD and, and, and those sorts of things, as well as depression, um, EPA, the other omega-3, actually seems to be much better. And the reason for that is that EPA is a strong anti-inflammatory in the brain. Um, It actually helps to neutralize those cytokines. So um, while DHA obviously is very important as well for uh, neurological structure, EPA seems to be just as important for actually lowering that inflammation. That is very interesting. And another thing that a lot of people don't realize is that many people feel better, you know, mood-wise when they take a short course of antibiotics for something else today, they end up with an ear infection or a tonsil infection. They didn't have any other choice but to take antibiotics. And they feel better mood-wise, you know. Mm. So that's also an interesting observation which supports the infection inflammatory theory. Yeah, there was an article in SOC called Does Infection Cause Depression and Autoimmune Disorders? And they were talking about this, uh, the tie of infection to, you know, mental illness. Um, There was a psychiatrist who studied under another doctor, and this doctor thought that mental illness was a result of infection because he noticed that people, when they have fevers, they get delusions. So Mm -hmm. this psychiatrist, Henry Cotton, he started taking out uh, psych patients uh, rotten teeth, and to see if that improved their mood at all or improved their brain function, and it didn't always work. So he started moving on to taking out their tons- tonsils and their testicles, ovaries, and sometimes even their colons. Whoa. And surprise, surprise, he had like a 45% mortality rate with his patients. <laughs> so even though he, <laughs> he was kind of crazy and taking out all these people's bits, I think he could have been on to something because there have been studies that showed that um, people who have mental illness, uh, they've had like uh, high levels of, or they've tested positive for toxoplasmosis gondii, which you get from, you know, uh, cat poop, cleaning out the cat box. Um, they tested positive for boronaviruses, Epstein-Barr virus, varicella zoster, uh, which is found in uh, chicken pox and herpes and shingles. 
Um, so there's a tie between certain infections and mental illness. So I think there's, you know, something to that. Because mm-hmm. when you, yeah, like Gabby said, when people do take antibiotics, they start to feel better mentally. Yeah. Yeah, in that in that same article, it talks about a Danish study um, published in 2013, and it basically looked at the medical records of over 3 million people and they found that any history of hospital- hospitalization for infection was associated with 62% increase of later developing a mood disorder, in- including depression and bipolar. And it also reported that a past history of autoimmune disorder increases the risk of future mood disorder by 45%. So basically, the correlation between infection and autoimmune disorder um, and um, and just mood disorders such as depression and bipolar is is really quite high, you know. Mm-hmm. And another interesting concept is that as long as your glands, your endocrine glands, all the glands that produces hormones, the pituitary gland, thyroid gland, the ovaries, the testicles, everything, you know. Um, when there's too much toxicity, they don't work properly. I mean, that also is related with inflammation, but it also reminds me of the concept of how important it is to detox in order to, you know, bring all those glands into balance. And what we're finding out about taking iodine, which basically helps to detox and restore all your hormone balances, it does help a lot, you know, so it's basically like, uh, you know, so many factors linked to one single concept of inflammation mm. that it is really surprising that mainstream science is like ma- uh, mostly devoted about treating, you know, non-existent chemical imbalances when there is so much mm. out there to work up to work on, you know. Yeah, Absolutely. Yeah, it's like there's a whole, like, um, mosaic of all these different things that could be going on. You know, the uh, inflammation, what's causing the inflammation. So there's the dietary factors there. There's environmental toxicities, uh, heavy metal toxicities in particular, like mercury. Um, there's the EMF connection as well. You know, if your your glands aren't functioning properly because of constant exposure to uh, to uh, radiation, um, there's just it, it's such a huge different things that connect that could be kind of going on that it just makes the whole idea that you can take a pill and make everything better seem so ridiculous. Um, yeah. It really is the kind of thing where you need to you need to really kind of dig into these things. And unfortunately, uh, the fact of the matter is that people who are depressed just don't tend to have the energy to do this kind of thing. So it would be really great if we would see more practitioners who are actually willing to take a more holistic perspective on these things and, and try and address the why um, as opposed to covering up the symptoms. Because yeah. there is a lot of great research out there, but the fact is for the great masses of people, you know, who go to their, you know, general practitioner with the symptoms or that, they're just given a prescription drug, mm-hmm. you know, 
we have told me that also other therapies, they are expensive and um, and people just resort to what is free. In a lot of countries, the healthcare system is in quote free. So that's what they prefer to do, even if there are other choices. Yeah. yeah. The other thing is too is that those those doing the the kind of natural uh, method. Well, you know, I hesitate to use those words because, anyway. Uh, but but looking at a more holistic perspective and trying to address these things that way, um, it's it's difficult because it takes time. Um, it takes energy. You know, changing the diet can be very difficult for some people. You know. Um, we all have our ingrained habits, our comfort foods, and those sorts of things. Um, a lot of times, those kinds of methods aren't attractive to people. You know, when they're kind of weighing the options and deciding what they want to do, you know, my doctor says this pill will correct the problem, or I could go with this other method and try and figure out the source of inflammation and change my diet and not be able to use Wi-Fi anymore and maybe have to turn off my cell phone and all these other kinds of things, you know, these these huge sort of lifestyle changes. Uh, a lot of times like that in and of itself, especially to somebody who's depressed, is just overwhelming. Um, so, mm-hmm. yeah, it's an uphill battle. It really is. Mm-hmm. There's somebody in the uh, chat who wrote that they had... Uh, noticed that they felt more depressed after a trauma, um, a physical trauma, because they had thought that their lymph nodes were running really slow. Mm-hmm. And I, I would imagine that that's simply an effect of, or a, a result of, of lack of the ability to uh, detox, because your your lymph system mm-hmm. is what, what runs out the toxins, and when it starts to build them up, that that would cause the imbalances that result in sort of feelings of depression. Um but that makes me think of uh, exercise, so I wanted to address that because we have that in our notes, um, that there's this article uh, that was posted on SOT called, uh let's see if I have it up here, um, No Exercise Does Not Make You Happier or Healthier. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and <laughs> the, uh, the, the theme of the article is it's from The Guardian, uh, is that a study into whether physical activity alleviates symptoms of depression has found that there is no benefit. And I, I guess anecdotally, I would disagree with that, but I guess it, it depends on how you approach it. If you're obsessively exercising um, so that you will feel better, um, that that probably also combines with your state of mind and may then not have a, a really great benefit. But I have to say for myself, that in certain cases where I've fell down or unmotivated or things like that, that simply getting out for a walk uh, can help quite a bit. And it, it helps me feel more alert. It helps my brain start to work better. Um, so I wonder what you guys think about that, if there's a, you know, a, a difference between sort of obsessively exercising or just um, engaging in, in, uh, in regular, you know, moderate physical activity. Yeah, I think there's a difference. Because just for myself, I would tend to agree because the time when I was pretty depressed was also the time when I was exercising like a fiend. I would exercise like at least five or six days a week. But I think that it really didn't help my mood. I mean, mood was more situational. Even though I did exercise, it didn't really help me feel better mentally. It was just something that I did just, you know, so I wouldn't gain weight. But I think that over-exercising can kind of 
uh, increase your cortisol levels too much and cause a lot mm-hmm. of stress, which can cause depression. So I don't think that it's black and white like exercise will improve your mood in all cases or that it will, mm-hmm. you know, not help you in any other case. I think it's kind of more individual. Yeah, like fight or flight exercise, you know, like you were saying, you know, stimulating too much your cortisol, yeah, that will increase, you know, your inflammation, <laughs> your chronic inflammation. But I think it also has to do with the type of exercise, like if there is no connectivity towards other people in the type of exercise that you do, then I will think that, yeah, that will be, will have a worse prognosis and improvement and mood. Yeah, I don't know. I, I read this article and I, I kind of I, I thought it was a bunch of bunk, to be perfectly honest. Um, they're talking about one study where they found that exercise didn't help. Um, and in this study, they say that that one group was given the normal um, therapeutic um, method, methods for uh, for depression. Any other group had exercise added onto the normal um, treatments, and they found that the exercise group didn't improve over the normal one. Well, what was that? They don't go into details about what that actually was. You know, did they medicate these people? Did they give them talk therapy? Like, what was it? Also, what was the exercise? You know, in in the mainstream, uh, going for a walk is considered exercise. You know. Yeah, it's benefit, beneficial to go for a walk, absolutely. But, you know, if they're, they're doing all these other interventions, you know, just adding a walk-in after dinner might not do anything. Um, there's been lots of studies that have shown um, that uh, doing exercise does actually help um, people uh, with depression. So I, I don't know. I, I kind of looked at this and I thought, well, it's one study. We're not looking at how well this study was designed. Um I kind of disagreed with the, the kind of sought tack on it and, uh, you know, tying it to obsessive exercise. There's no indication in the study that they were doing any kind of obsessive exercising or exercising really, really hard. And I kind of doubt that they were. Um, I imagine it was like, you know, they added in a jog or something like that or some light physical exercise in a gym or something or a yoga class. Um, I would I would hesitate to take this as gospel. Yeah, it does require like a you know, better mood, so to speak, just to get out of bed and go there, you know, to do some exercise. So I think in that sense, yeah, like it's surprising that we find that in that study, in that particular study. Uh, From another point of view, I think of all the people nowadays who are so disconnected from their feelings, uh, feelings and they just feel their daily plan with activities like going to the gym, Going these, doing that, you know, do, 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 you know. Yeah. Um, you know, without stopping to realize, you know, it's just really like going somewhere. Um, yeah, I guess like adding in exercise like a pill is probably not the right um, approach. And that you do, like we've been saying from the beginning, you have to look at the why. You know, if you're uh, depressed because you're inflamed, then maybe adding exercise is not, uh, in, at least in and of itself, is not going to be. Um, a solution. Um, but I think exercise can make up a good um, addition to a protocol. You know, so a couch potato is, is just, you know, that's, that's asking for mood disorders. Somebody who isn't getting up and moving around and, you know, circulating their lymph and, and you know, getting those uh, positive endorphins that are released when you exercise, 
you know, that's that, I, I think that those things are very important to to add to your protocol. And I think it also depends on how you view the exercise. Like if you're socially isolated and exercising would be a chance for you to get out and hang out with your friends and walk through the woods and do things that you enjoy, then yes, it's going to work. But if it's something that you feel like, oh, my God, I have to lift this weight or I have to you know, run on the treadmill and you don't like that thing, then, of course, it's not going to work for you. So it's basically mm-hmm. finding something that you enjoy and doing it kind mm-hmm. of tack on to you know, other things that make you feel good, not just saying, oh, exercise is going to be the, the magical you know, solution to my depression. Yeah, I agree. You know, get out there and play a sport that you enjoy. You know, get physical in some other way. Take a martial arts class, you know, go play extreme frisbee, you know, whatever the case may be. Um, you know, that that kind of solves the social isolation thing because, you know, you're playing a team sport and you're connecting with people. Um, and also it, it gives the benefit of uh, of exercise. Another interesting connection actually is that um, doing any kind of strength training where you're actually, um, you know, doing resistance exercises of some kind increases your mitochondria. Um, yeah. And mitochondria are like the little power plants in the cells. Um, so, and there is a connection between having mitochondrial disorders and having depression, you know. So how well the body is able to synthesize energy, um, you know, can, can interfere with and cause mood, mood disorders if you're not producing energy properly. Now, most of that is mitochondria in the brain, but nonetheless, increasing the amount of mitochondria you have over, you know, systemically over the whole body would probably have a beneficial result, I would, I would hazard to guess. Yeah. Actually, I read a study, you know, that talked about resistance training how it increased your mitochondria, it was not only in the muscles, it was in organs as well, like the liver, uh-huh. the kidney, and also the brain. Hmm. Yeah. Yes. Yes. There you go. Well, one thing to consider <laughs> is that if someone is chronically inflamed, um, doing strenuous exercise first thing in the morning is probably really not a good idea um, because that's when your cortisol should be highest in the whole day. And um, I remember Jack Cruz specifically saying um, not to do it in the uh, in the morning because you raise your cortisol levels way too high, and uh, and that can actually cause you some damage if you do, if you do it too too often. Um, what he also did say was that if you um, if you're doing strength training specifically, um, the best time to do that is actually um, between I think it's 1 p.m. in the afternoon and. 5 p.m. So in that gap of the afternoon, and he says, it's a, I can't remember exactly what mechanism it is. It's, it's to do with your circadian rhythms and your melatonin cycles. And um, he cited some studies in his book. I can't remember exactly what the percentage is, but I'm sure that he was saying something like, when, you, um, when you're basically building on your muscle, if you are, if you're doing it between 1 and 5 p.m. in the afternoon, uh, protein synthesis is upregulated by about 400% in, <clears throat> in comparison to any other time of the day. And um, so, yeah, that, that's just a recommendation of Jack Cruz is to do it in the afternoon if you're going to do it at all. If you, if, if you can't do it in the afternoon, it might be best not to go too hard on the sort of resistance training type exercises at any other time in the day. Mm-hmm. Did he mention a particular hour or was it was just the afternoon? 
Well, yeah, he said between 1 p.m. and 5 p.m., if I can, if I remember correctly. Yeah, I remember reading that, too. Yeah. Mm. Well, that represents yet another area where I'm not adhering to Jack Cruz's recommendations because the only place <laughs> I fit my exercise is in, in the morning. Like, first thing, I'm like 6 a.m., I'm at the gym. And uh, it, it's going to be difficult for me to adjust my schedule otherwise. So I wonder if I could ask Jack Cruz, is it, is it better to not do exercise at all if you can't do it during those hours? Or is it, uh, is, is it kind of like second best to do it outside of those hours? I would well, go your As a yeah, thing, Jack, it's really hard to actually stick to his uh, to his protocol. It's like it, it's really hard for the average person. Like you know, <laughs> most people are at work during that time. How are you going to fit in some resistance yeah. exercise? Jeez. Yeah, I know. Then you've got to go your rice bath afterwards. Yeah. <laughs> a good job, you know. At six o'clock in the morning, I'm like, what? I don't want to get out of bed. <laughs> <laughs> it definitely takes some willpower sometimes. <laughs> Yeah, but I, I used to do my exercise like years ago, first thing in the morning too. And I do think it's second best because a lot of times people, like as their day goes on, they have to go to work, they have to do all this stuff. And then by the end of the day, they're just tired and they just want to go home. So I think mm-hmm. doing it when you can first thing in the morning is better than not doing it at all because you can kind of get it out of the way and go on with your day. And then after work, you can do whatever you need to do. But now yeah. I do it in the afternoon just because I don't want to wake up that early. <laughs> go to the gym. Yeah. I used to I used to do it in the morning and I used to feel absolutely great. And then I read I read that book and I was thinking, oh no, you know. <laughs> I mean, who, I mean, who's at home at like one o'clock in the afternoon? Everyone's at work, as as yeah. you just said, Tiffany. Um, yeah, I would imagine it was second best. To be honest, not everyone can uh, can can implement that into their their regime, can they? Yeah. I think what what is important is as long as if you do exercise, it is important to um to make sure that you um that you consume adequate amounts of protein um within like the space of about twenty to thirty minutes afterwards. Because um, mm. I know there are some studies that show that. Uh, muscle muscle mass basically um, is broken down if protein isn't consumed within a, a short period after doing strenuous sort of um, resistance training. Hmm. I wonder if they tested people though who are ketogenic, as far as that's concerned. Because I actually don't do that. I usually wake up in the morning and I, I um, I'll, do, I'll I'll continue to fast um, and I'll go to the gym and I'll come back and I'll have my kind of fatty beverage which is, uh, you know, consuming fat without um, any protein, and I won't actually take in any protein until, um, you know, probably around 1 o'clock in the afternoon is my first kind of protein consumption of the day. Um, and I don't know. I've, I've noticed pretty good results. It, I, I can see why a sugar burner would, uh, would, would have issues with that and start having their muscle break down. But, uh, you know, it's been shown that being ketogenic and, and, and eating, consuming fat actually has a po- protein-sparing um, effect. Um, I, I guess we're getting kind of off the topic of depression here, but uh, but uh, yeah, yeah, I don't I've know. Read I, I, both I ways that. too. That mm. It's okay if you don't eat immediately after you work out, but you mentioned protein, Elliot, and that 
kind of brings me to uh, there's an article in SOC called Red Meat Has the Risk of Depression. Mm. And they found that women who eat the lowest amounts of red meat, like beef or lamb, have higher rates of depression. Have, have lower, so red right? Red meat is good for you. Have, have higher rates of depression. So, oh, people people who eat less red meat have higher rates. Yeah, yeah. Okay, okay. Awesome. I shall eat lamb, lamb and beef, which I think it's a study in Australia, which um, their lamb and their beef, uh, it's mostly grass-fed, so probably, yeah, omega-3s and all that, yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I bet I bet there is the, the omega-3 connection there for sure. So eating, eating grocery store red meat probably isn't going to help your depression, but... Uh, but you know, getting getting the good stuff, the grass fed, is probably uh, probably the the key there. Mm-hmm. And it is like a main therapy, like um, the mood cure. You know, um, Julia Ross is her name. Her health center. The priority is to put the person on a good, bad, you know, rich in protein diet. You know, yeah, viscera, organs, you know, fat, meat, all the good stuff. Yeah. Rich in minerals, which rich in vitamins, good sources of like whole, um, complete proteins. Um, I mean, that's what that's what red meat is, right there, like nutrient dense. So it it makes a lot of sense. Never mind the WHO telling you that it's going to give you cancer. Yeah. <laughs> I know. For me, when uh, when I was doing uh, CrossFit last year, and I. I, I'll admit, uh, with some chagrin, that I did not continue. Um, I, I would like to. I would like to get back into it, but it was just so nuts. We did what's called the on-ramp uh, program, which is where you go and you kind of you, you learn how to do it. And so they they do take you through all the different exercises. But we were doing the early morning program, so we were going to have four o'clock, mm-hmm. and being there by like five thirty, and uh, we just jumped you know right into it. And when I came back to the house at, you know, like six thirty, seven o'clock, I had to eat like a one pound steak just to stay awake <laughs> and like have energy throughout the day. And I was eating so much red meat during that period and it started to freak me out a little bit, but I I felt normal. And like if I didn't if I didn't get that protein and of course I was doing a lot of fat too, like eating like a, about a pound of butter a day. Um mm. if I didn't get that into me then I felt really lethargic and kind of down throughout the day. But if I did, then I kind of would normalize and come back to a, a normal state of energy. So, <clears throat> and I was at the time uh, ketogenic, you know, it was going, it was testing my ketone levels and all of that. And so I wonder if it's just a, a personal body chemistry thing or what, but um, yeah, I was just, just ravenous with hunger. I think that would be because you're new to it. Yeah. That, yeah I think that would, yeah. that would probably normalize over time. Uh, because I actually yeah. found yeah. as well, you know, when you jump right into it, you're like, you know, creating new mitochondria, building muscle, that sort of thing. Your body is like crying out for more resources, like, give me more, give me more. Um, yeah. But over time, I found myself, because like I, I do CrossFit as well, and I'm up at 5 a.m., I'm at the, the gym for 6. And uh, yeah, I, I, I have not noticed that, or I mean, at least not anymore. I don't remember when I was right. first starting it. I might have might have had that kind of effect, but... But I think you would find that over time it would normalize. Yeah. Yeah, I found that too. Yeah. Like if I started uh, exercising after not exercising for a long time, and it's just like, oh, the hunger 
it just ramps up to like unbelievable scales and I would eat and I would still be hungry. And then I just so happened to eat a gigantic steak that took up like over half of the plate and I just felt so satisfied. <laughs> <laughs> so then I said, okay, I think I need more red meat. So started eating more meat and I felt better. And uh, I found that I didn't get as sore. It could have been just because I was more used to exercising, but at the beginning, I got so sore from exercising, I wouldn't be able to walk straight for like after the fifth day. It was that bad. <laughs> yeah. Well, maybe that's one of the mechanisms for uh, red meat actually helping with depression is that you're so satisfied after eating it. Oh, that was so good. That was so good. <laughs> yep. Well, it's, um, <clears throat> I kind of want to move into a, a, a different area of discussion here that we had in our notes and we had discussed before the show. Um, and I wonder if we can merge these two topics. So the idea of depression as a, a stepping stone um, uh, on the uh, on the forum, um, there's this thread, depression as a stepping stone to soul growth, which is very interesting. Um, and then there's, you know, this uh, complimentary article on site called Is Depression Good for You? Um, and so, you know, the idea being that uh, depression can be utilized um, towards certain ends. Um, and we've talked about this before in relation to feelings of malaise about the world or feelings of anger, you know, towards injustice that's happening and how you can use that to sort of catalyze your will um, towards learning more, um, towards taking action, things like that. Um, so the other point to bring into that <clears throat> is we had talked about the idea of psychopaths as uh, as role models in society, which is, seems to be kind of happening. Um, I don't remember off the top of my head, but wasn't there a guy who wrote a book uh, that was essentially about that? I don't know. Do you guys remember the title of that? The Wisdom of Psychopaths. W- Wisdom of Psychopaths, yeah. And so, I forget the and that, you know, yeah. But it's uh, not all movies necessarily, but it is also glorified in, in some movies. Um, there was, what, Seven Psychopaths that came out recently um, mm. that had kind of that bent to it. And people seem to be, in this area of discussion, seem to be saying that, well, psychopaths don't aren't held back, you know, by sort of petty human emotion, like <laughs> empathy and, and, uh, and feelings of depression, um, and things like that, so they can be better leaders and they can accomplish more, which personally I think is a really dangerous idea. Um, mm-hmm. And <clears throat> so I wonder, uh, because what we had brought up psychopaths in talking about this show and saying that, you know, I wonder if, if people look at psychopaths and say, well, that person doesn't feel, doesn't appear to feel depression. You know, they just kind of go and they just do their thing throughout all, all of their life and they accomplish all these goals and they climb the ladder, whether it's corporate ladder or political or whatever. Um, you know, and I want to be like that. You know, I don't I don't want those setbacks in my life. Um, but normal humans uh, feel depression, you know, on a regular basis from a number of different factors. Even if you're like completely set on your diet and your mental outlook on life, you are going to feel sad and depressed about certain things. You just can't avoid it. It's part of the normal human range. Um, So that makes me think, you know, that like we're talking about depression as sort of a stepping stone to soul growth, to using it to catalyze your, your willpower and your ability to learn um, versus the approach of sort of idealizing 
psychopaths who wouldn't who don't feel that um you know i guess i i could say i i already know what you guys think about this but i just want to ask it to start the discussion you know do you notice the the idealization of of the of the psychopath and the lack of depression there um and you know do you, what do you think is a solution to that to helping people uh utilize depression in a in a practical way Yeah, that makes sense <laughs> yeah it's, it's, <laughs> Maybe a, kind of it's a, a a tricky a, a tricky kind of thing to, to there's a lot of entry points there i'd say um, yeah. But, yeah, I, I would say I have noticed for sure that, um, you know, it's not necessarily an ideation of, of the psychopath it, itself. It's almost like, uh, you know, that the hero is often somebody who, who doesn't let emotion get in the way at all. You know, somebody who is able to compartmentalize and get the job done. Um, you know, even if, you know, it, I'm, I'm noticing actually more recently that you see a lot of um, instances where the hero compromises some of their own kind of moral um, or maybe uh, if you could consider such a thing as objective kind of moral type uh, things in order to get the job done. Um, I've noticed that in a lot of kind of the, the, the superhero uh, kind of uh, shows that are showing up on Netflix and stuff where they'll they'll resort to things like torture or something along those lines in order to get the job done because it's, it's kind of necessary. And that's, that's definitely like kind of more of a, a psychopathic uh, perspective that, you know, by I'm not going to let my emotions get in the way. I'm going to do whatever needs to be done in order to get this, get the job done. Or, you know, however that might manifest in somebody's life, like you said, climbing a corporate ladder, it's okay to screw people over the ends justifies the means, that whole thing. So, yeah, I think it, it, it kind of is, and it's just kind of uh, like, you know, a, um, uh, a symptom of being in what's called a polarized society where you have kind of psychopaths at the top of the food chain and their um, mode of being kind of trickles down to the rest of us. And those kinds of values end up getting emphasized over anything else. Yeah. Yeah. I, guess I don't know. That was a bit of a ramble there. Yeah. <laughs> no, it makes sense to me. I, um, I guess it might be kind of a stretch to try to connect those two topics. I, I can see this thread in my mind, but I can't quite figure out how to say it. But um, maybe if we just concentrate on like one aspect of it, which is that idea of using depression to catalyze yourself. I think it's an interesting idea. I think the, um, you know, the sort of problem with that or the, the, the block that people might have is being self-aware enough to realize that that's what's happening and that that's, mm. uh, that, that would be a, a possible outcome. Because, you know, when you're feeling depressed, it's very hard to pull back and have an objective viewpoint of what's going on. And so say, okay, I'm feeling depressed. Um, you know, what is what is causing this and uh, what am I feeling this about in regards to um, how can I use this to help myself make better choices? Maybe I'm feeling guilty about something that I did and so I need to change my mode of action. Or maybe I'm feeling sad about something in the state of the world, and so I need to see how to observe that in, a, in an objective way instead of a subjective way. Um, you know, it's, but it's it's very hard to uh, to pull out of that while you're in that state of mind. And so maybe that's where the, the idea of the network comes in, where you know people who are close to you could help you realize that, and you could go, you know, if you could muster up enough self awareness to say to your friends or family, like, hey, I'm I'm feeling this way, you know what should I be looking at um, and get some outside perspective there. 
Yeah. Well, it kind of connects to um, Dabrowski. And uh, they ta- they've spoken a lot about Dabrowski on the uh, one of the other SOT uh, radio shows, uh, The Truth Perspective. Um, they, I think they did a two-part um, series on, on Dabrowski and his ideas. But he, he has this, and I, I don't pretend to be uh, completely intimately familiar with his, his theories, but uh, one thing that he talks about is, is, is something called positive disintegration. And kind of that idea is that, you know, when you're going through these tough times and like it might be depression or, um, you know, just questioning um, what's going on, that's actually, uh, you know, the point at which change can actually be made. And, um, you know, the idea is that the previous kind of psychological structures um, that you've been living by, um, suddenly you come into a situation where those uh, structures are no longer capable of, of dealing with what you're facing. So it's kind of this disintegration of those previous structures, like you, a disintegration of your coping mechanisms or whatever you were able to do before to, uh, to kind of deal with life. Uh, suddenly it isn't capable of doing that anymore. So you can have this positive disintegration where it's kind of like you build these new structures and you re-kind of rejig your, your psychology so that um, it, it's like an evolutionary thing. So you're kind of evolving to um, be able to deal with more complex situations. And uh, um, I, I, don't, I might be butchering Dabrowski here. I'm not entirely sure, but that was kind of my understanding of it. Well, I think that basically a healthy level of depression is healthy. I mean, um, how can we ever grow or change if we, you know, just feel the same way all the time, just, you know, pretty much happy and content? I mean, the normal human range is experience all emotions. And if you feel a little bad, like you mentioned, Jonathan, like um, maybe you did something to hurt somebody and you feel guilty about that, so you want to change. Or maybe if you're, like, in a bad situation, like, say, you're being abused or something, you're just feeling really, really bad about yourself. And you sit with that feeling for a while and you realize, okay, something has to change. I cannot go on like this. So I think mm-hmm. that in that way, depression can be extremely helpful because mm-hmm. it can make you make changes and you'll go out on a different path where if, you know, everything was just okay and you're just going through the motions, you you know, kind of wouldn't have that impetus to change anything. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's like it's kind of like something that can spur you on to evolve in your own psychology. Kind of like you you know, you you you're depressed and I guess there's there's you know different ways you can deal with that. You can try and suppress that with uh, drugs or distraction or something like that. You can wallow in it and just mm-hmm. be a depressed person all the time. Or you can use it as the impetus to actually make changes and, you know, really do some introspection and kind of kind of figure out where you are and, and what's not working. Right. Yeah, I can only hope that uh, more people are are able to do that. It's unfortunate, like we've talked about throughout this show, that, uh, you know, that so many people who are feeling down uh, are automatically going the the prescription drug route and trying to Mm -hmm. combat it with antidepressants, which, you know, as we've discussed, pretty much just makes it worse. Mm -hmm. Uh, And I think it really cuts out the entire possibility for having any kind of beneficial emotional or, or mental growth out of the experience. Yeah. Yeah, and that, that's the thing that people say a lot who do take antidepressants, that it just makes them feel numb 
or makes them feel like a zombie, zombie or they just don't feel much of anything. They just feel blah. So in a way, it kind of works because they don't feel these really negative emotions as strongly as they did before, but it doesn't allow them to feel anything. So therefore, you know, nothing happens. Yeah. They miss out on the opportunity to um, to develop their personalities and become better human beings. Essentially, um, I think I think what what we as a, a sort of a human race uh, need to need to do is to develop the skills um, in order to to basically to utilize these negative emotions and these negative experiences and these feelings and impressions about the world. And um, and somehow um, um, you know work with them rather than against them, rather than trying to um, to suppress our, our negative emotions, our, 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 our negative experiences, our, our feelings about the world, um, rather than than trying to run away from them, um, we can actually look at them as tools. Um, to better develop a more objective understanding of the world and of human interaction and what we are meant to be here for, whatever that is, <laughs> you know? Yeah. 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 And one thing, I mean, Jonathan, I know you were you were trying to connect this kind of with the, the whole kind of psychopaths as role models things, and I, th I think they really do connect because if you have this kind of ideation of the unfeeling, get-the-job-done type perspective, then when someone does actually fall into some kind of depression or mood imbalance in some way, um, they think it's wrong. You know, the perspective is like, well, look, everybody right. else is getting it done. Everybody else is, uh, is able to kind of put these feelings aside and just do what needs to be done. And it's kind of like there, there's no value to that. Um, and I think that's actually one of the things that, that, that's really kind of revolutionary about Dabrowski's work is that he was like, no, we're not trying, we, you know, the, you don't want to just kind of get rid of this. You want to work with it. This is actually a valuable state. And that perspective is definitely missing from, you know, the popular conception of what depression is, um, that it is actually yeah. something useful and something to work with. Yeah. Cool. Well, that's, that, that is a well-spoken uh, uh, way to put what was going through my head. Thank you for helping me <laughs> get that into words. <laughs> yeah. Um, awesome. All right. Well, let's. Uh, I guess we are running down on, on time a little bit here, and we've covered a lot of the topics that we wanted to. Uh, we have a segment uh, from Zoya today for the pet health segment. Um, so we're going to go to that now, and then uh, we'll come back afterwards and uh, do have a recipe uh, today for uh, homemade low carb shake and bake pork chops. So we're gonna <laughs> we're gonna try that out. <laughs> Yum. Maybe that maybe that will help some people feel happy. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, we will be back uh, after this. <laughs> Welcome to the Pet Health segment of the Health and Wellness Show. My name is Zoya, and today I would like to share with you a talk by Tracy Witt on the topic of veterinary suicide. As it turns out, veterinarians have four times the risk of suicide than the general population, and twice the risk of other health professionals. There are all kinds of possible reasons for it, 
that include stress, compassion fatigue, guilt from losing patients, or exposure to more deaths in general. But even if the main topic of the talk is suicide among uh, veterinarians, Tracy brings up data and information that is useful and helpful for everyone who struggles and tries to survive in this crazy world or knows someone like this. Personally, I find these statistics uh, staggering, but also sure that in reality the numbers are probably even higher. Hope that you'll find the information useful. Here it is. So what I'm going to be talking about today is reviewing what we know about veterinarian suicide, and I'm also going to give some ideas toward the end of what we can do about it and try to empower all of you. So to give you some background on suicidal behavior in general in the United States, every single year, almost 52 million people will experience suicidal ideation or will think about suicide. A much smaller number, around 900,000, will make a non-fatal suicide attempt. And an even smaller number, around 38,000, will die by suicide. So something that suicide researchers, preventionists have wondered about, and um, we're still trying to explain, is why there's such a large discrepancy between the number of people who think about suicide and the number who die by suicide. So what accounts for that difference? And we'll get back to that idea in a second. Regarding gender, when it comes to non-fatal suicide attempts, women actually outnumber men about three to one. But pretty much the opposite is true when it comes to death by suicide. So in the United States, 80% of people who die by suicide are actually men. Again, this is something that we've really struggled to try to figure out why this might be. So if there are identical risk factors for thoughts about suicide and death by suicide, then why would we see such a uh, gender paradox? Now getting to my central idea that I want to talk about, veterinarians and suicide, we know that health professionals in general, so this group would include physicians, have about double the risk of suicide compared to the general population. But veterinarians actually have four times the risk of the general population and about double that of other health professionals. So why might this be? Um, how can we explain this, especially given the similarities between other health professions and veterinarians? So we've actually known about this elevated risk for 20 to 30 years now, and it's been replicated in lots of different countries. And people have put forward many ideas for why veterinarians might be at greater risk. So um, there are too many risk factors to even uh, um, discuss all of them, but some main ideas are that veterinarians experience more stress than the general population. They may be more socially isolated may be more prone to mental illness, including depression, and perhaps even people who are already at risk are drawn to the profession for some reason. Um, another risk factor that's been thought about and written about is increased risk for alcohol use disorders. And finally, uh, there's the idea that veterinarians might hold more stigmatizing views about actually seeking mental health treatment. So if they are experiencing troubles, Maybe veterinarians are less willing to seek help. So 
like I said, there's a lot of different risk factors that have been thought about and written about, and it can get kind of overwhelming to try to distill and make sense of all of this. So what can be really helpful when trying to understand what might explain something as complicated as suicide is to use a theoretical model to try to distill those risk factors down, the idea being that we could have a large number of risk factors but the reasons that they contribute to suicide is that they all have something in common with them. So we can think about this in a simpler, more parsimonious way. So the theoretical model that I've used in the bulk of my research is known as the interpersonal psychological theory of suicide. The ideas are fairly straightforward. Uh, you need to have three different things present in order for someone to die by suicide. So the first of these is thwarted belongingness, or feeling disconnected from other people. The second is perceived burdensomeness, feeling like your death would be worth more than your life to those around you. Now, according to this model, when both of these things are present, thwarted belongingness and perceived burdensomeness, a person's going to experience suicide ideation or have thoughts about suicide. Now, as I discussed already, the vast majority of people who think about suicide do not die by suicide. So there must be something else that explains this. And so uh, this idea or this third concept is referred to as the acquired capability for suicide. The idea here is that suicide is something that's very scary and very painful. Most people, even those who think about suicide, aren't capable of enacting lethal self-injury. It's only when a person experiences all three of these things simultaneously that they're going to be at risk for a fatal suicide attempt. Now, we refer to this capability as acquired because we think that it's something that you're not born with. People are born with a general fear of death and physical pain. The idea is that as we experience certain life events, that can cause us to habituate to that fear of death and physical pain and could increase acquired capability for suicide. This model does a pretty good job of explaining why we see the, the gender differences that we do in suicide. Specifically, men tend to have higher levels of physical pain tolerance than women. They also tend to report greater fearlessness about death and experience more um, violence, aggression, those kinds of things that could increase this capability. So when thinking about this model and thinking about veterinarians and why they might be at greater suicide risk even than physicians, one thing that jumped out at me was that veterinarians have more frequent and direct exposure to death even than physicians. The average general practitioner physician might experience 20 patient deaths in a year, whereas the average practicing veterinarian perform six to eight euthanasia procedures per month. Um, so the exposure is more frequent and also more direct and is actively bringing about death. So thinking about that and thinking of this model, I hypothesized that experience with euthanasia might increase this capability for suicide, might make the experience of death less scary, um, less fear-inducing, as was alluded to earlier. And that could explain the veterinarian suicide risk. So this capability combined with other risk factors might make a veterinarian more um, likely to make a fatal suicide attempt. So to try to test this out, I collected data on a sample of veterinary students 
they were paid $20 to compete, complete a series of questionnaires. Regarding this idea about euthanasia, what I found is that experience with euthanasia, the more experience they had, the less anxious or distressed they reported being about euthanasia. This isn't a bad thing. It's probably a protective thing. Um, but this, this, this diminished anxiety about performing euthanasia was associated with increased fearlessness about the prospect of one's own death. So as you get used to the experience of euthanasia, um, it makes the concept of your own death seem less scary. So that's an important component of acquired capability. So overall, this is a net positive effect of greater experience with euthanasia, more fearlessness about death. Now what's interesting is we found that this effect was specific to um, experience with euthanasia of companion animals. So this was what we had expected. We had thought that companion animals who kind of fall on that spectrum between human and other types of animals, that that might have a more potent impact on how a person views or thinks about their own death. We also found that this was specific to euthanasia exposure and didn't generalize to experience with necropsy or surgery. Again, this is what we had expected. Um, necropsy and surgery are things um, that have human counterparts in medicine, um, whereas euthanasia is unique. So we thought that there was something specific or unique about euthanasia that might account for this uh, increased suicide rate in veterinarians. Now, we also looked at these other risk factors in, in the vet students. Um, we found that compared to unselected undergrads, indeed, they reported higher levels of stress, probably not surprising to you. Um, they also tended to report higher levels of social isolation than unselected undergrads. What's interesting, though, is they did not report higher levels of depression or alcohol use problems. And this is good news. They did not report more stigmatizing views about seeking out treatment for mental illness. So kind of putting things into this theoretical model, um, we indeed found support for the idea that veterinarians may be more prone to this thwarted belongingness construct, or at least veterinary students. It's also possible that this experience of stress over time could contribute toward feelings of perceived burdensomeness. If you constantly feel like you're not getting enough done, you're not doing well enough, you might start to um, feel like you're a burden on others around you. And then finally, experience with euthanasia may contribute toward this acquired capability piece. So, what do we do about this? And I'm going to talk about a couple of things that I would suggest. But one thing you'll notice is missing is I'm not going to say that veterinarians should stop performing euthanasia. As has been talked about today, that's a really important part of your profession. I'm not suggesting that at all. Rather, at least um, according to the, this theoretical model, the idea is that even if someone has high acquire, acquired capability, but they don't have high levels of thwarted belongingness or perceived burdensomeness, they're not going to die by suicide. So those are the areas that we can target. Um, so one thing that, that could be very helpful is teaching stress management, things like mindfulness techniques, as discussed in the earlier talk. We know that stress is associated with suicide, and stress management techniques can help reduce suicide. Another big thing is that, you know, we found that these vet students were reporting higher levels of social isolation than undergraduates. There are probably things that we can do from a programmatic level 
to bring more of them together, foster a sense of teamwork and, and um, collaboration, and, and maybe do a better job of that so that there isn't this level of social isolation. Another thing that all of you can do is learn the warning signs for suicide, so that if you notice these things in peers or colleagues, you can do something about it and help them out. So what I've got here, this is a, a helpful acronym that was put out by the American Association of Suicidology. These are um, warning signs to help the general public um, discern when somebody that they know might be at risk. So we use the, PAC, the acronym is PATH WARM. So things you're looking for are obviously suicidal ideation, substance abuse, especially increased abuse compared to normal, a sense of purposelessness, Agitation. Agitation is um, kind of an even more intense version of anxiety, feeling really keyed up and on edge. Person reporting that they feel trapped or hopeless. Withdrawing from those around them. Increased anger and irritability. Restlessness and mood changes. And I also have handouts with me that I can give to those of you who are interested in, in having this all written down in one place. Now, if you are worried about somebody, what do you actually do with that information? Um, so one important thing is to believe the person. This sounds kind of obvious, but many of us, like I said, uh, suicide is a scary prospect. And most of us, when someone reports those feelings, our first instinct might be to kind of push away or avoid it because it's distressing to think about. The truth is that when somebody divulges that information, that's a really scary thing for them to do, too, to confide in you. So what you want to avoid doing is saying things like, you don't really mean that, you would never do that, because that'll shut the door of communication. Instead, what you want to do is listen in a non-judgmental non -judgmental manner, give them the space to talk. Don't be concerned that by allowing them to talk about suicide, it's going to encourage them to do it more. The research does not bear that out. You can give them the space to discuss it. Offer social support. Even just... Uh, any level of compassion, offering to spend more time with the person, that can make a big difference and can even be life-saving. Now, beyond just what you can do in that moment individually, you can also encourage the person to seek help. So this is a really great resource. It's a 24-hour-a-day, seven-day-a-week National Suicide Prevention Lifeline. So you can encourage the person to call that number, and they'll have access to a person trained to deal with suicide. Also, if you're worried about somebody you know, you can call this number and get advice of what to do. Um, especially in the case of fellow veterinary students, if you're really concerned, you might want to consider contacting their parents or family members. They might have sworn you to secrecy. They may be a little mad at you if you do this, but if you're really concerned, this could mean uh, saving their lives or getting them the help they need. And finally, and this is most relevant to veterinary students, too, um, if you're really concerned about a fellow student, you should consider speaking to administrators at your veterinary college or counseling center that many of these colleges have. Again, a person might be a little upset with you, but it could mean getting them the help they need and keeping them safe. Okay, that's all I have. Thank you very much.
drugs helps with depression too. In my opinion. But thank you, Zoya. <laughs> that was a great segment. <laughs> I do not mean to make light of that. The uh I just love those notes. Uh that was a really fascinating uh segment there and uh interesting statistics about veterinarians dealing more with uh direct more directly with death even than uh than physicians, than human physicians. Um something I had never really thought about but certainly rings true. Um so yeah, it's something to think about. So uh let's see here. Today for our uh recipe we have <clears throat> um, homemade shake and bake pork chops with a liver gravy. Uh, now this is all pork based, mm. um, so we'll see if you guys are adventurous enough to try this out. Uh, it's pretty interesting. Uh, the the chops themselves are, are pretty simple. Uh, you need four rib chops, bones removed, about three quarters of an inch thick, but the thickness can you know can vary depending on what you like. Uh, one half cup of olive oil. One cup, <clears throat> now this is where you can kind of vary the recipe if you want. It says one cup of blanched almond flour. Uh, you can also use anything like arrowroot, uh, tapioca, or even um, pork rinds if you wanted to powder uh, pork rinds and then use a cup of, uh, of pork rind powder. Um, uh, two teaspoons of salt, one teaspoon of smoked paprika. Now, if you are avoiding nightshades, you can leave out the paprika. It won't affect it that much. Um one half teaspoon dried or fresh tarragon chopped, one half teaspoon of onion powder, <clears throat> one half teaspoon of garlic powder, and one quarter teaspoon of white pepper. Uh, so you take your chops, uh, remove the bones, uh, pat them dry uh, with a towel, and then pour olive oil into a flat bottom bowl. Combine the almond flour, salt, smoked paprika, tarragon, onion powder, garlic powder, and white pepper into a large plastic bag or a bowl. Be sure to mix everything together really well. Um, dip each pork chop into the oil and then shake off the excess so that only a thin coating is left on the chop itself. Um, place each chop into the bag or the bowl one at a time and coat with the breading mixture. Um, if they're too oily, then remove any wet chunks from the flour mixture and then try it again. Um, then place the chops onto a baking sheet, preferably raised on a rack to allow them to cook evenly on all sides. Bake at 350 for about 20 minutes or until the internal temperature is between 140 and 160, depending on your preference for whether or not it's pink. Um, <clears throat> so that's the uh, the pork chops, and uh, those are, are pretty good. You just have to make sure that you get the right consistency with your breading. So if you do use pork rinds, make sure that you powder them really well. Um, you don't want, like, uh, chunks in there. You want it to be fully powdered. Um, and this goes really well with a liver gravy. Uh, so here's the liver gravy recipe, and this is also fairly simple. It takes uh, less than 30 minutes. You need one pork liver, about three-quarters of a pound, uh, one-half cup of tapioca flour. Again, here you can also use uh, almond or arrowroot uh, or even pork rinds, but for the um, for the gravy, I would recommend using something a little finer like tapioca or arrowroot. Um, one-half teaspoon of salt, one-eighth teaspoon of black pepper, one tablespoon of lard or bacon grease, two cups of pork stock, uh, and one quarter cup of full-fat coconut milk. So you chop the liver into uh, small slices, like one-half by two-inch slices, and dredge it in the tapioca flour seasoned with salt and pepper. 
in a large skillet over medium-high heat, add a tablespoon of lard or bacon grease, and then sear the liver. Keep it pink on the inside. Just sear it on the outside um, about two to three minutes on each side. Take the liver out of the pan and set it aside. <clears throat> over medium heat, deglaze the brown bits from the pan by slowly adding the pork stock into the pan and then kind of scrape them gently so that you get everything into the pork stock. Add the coconut milk and the brown liver to the skillet. Cook to combine about five minutes, and then transfer uh, the liver and the pork stock to a blender or a food processor and blend until mm-hmm. the gravy is thick and smooth. And remember that um, it's a warm mixture, uh, so you want to be very careful in the blender. Go slow, just pulse it at first. Otherwise, it's going to explode everywhere. You're going to burn yourself. So you want to be very careful with that. Um, so then you return the smooth gravy from the blender into the skillet, finish cooking it over low heat until it's thickened a little bit more, about 10 or 15 minutes. And there you have uh, liver gravy that you can put onto your shake-and-bake pork chops. Wow. That sounds really good, Jonathan. Have you made that yourself? I've done the pork chops before, but I have not tried the liver gravy yet. So I'm actually really thinking about doing that today. Mm. Ah, sweet. Yeah. My uh, have, freezer is loaded with liver right now, so that's something I'd like to try. Uh, nice. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I've I've, uh, I've done gravy before as well in a different fashion, but never with, with pork liver. So that sounds like it would be pretty good. Um, mm-hmm. Again, this is from the uh, the book that I've quoted before uh, called Beyond Bacon, uh, which I highly recommend if anybody wants to. It's it's pretty much like the best pork recipe book I've ever seen. Um, it has <laughs> recipes for every single part of the of the pig. Um, so it's uh, Beyond Bacon by Stacy Toth and Matthew McCurry. To give credit, credit where credit is due, there. Um, so I hope. Uh, our listeners get a chance to try that out. Um, and if I spoke too fast and you missed any of the recipe, uh, after we go off the air here, you can always go back to the Blog Talk Radio um, page, and our interview will be available for uh, for replay or our show. Sorry, the episode. Um, so you can play that back. And uh, I'm also going to post this on the uh, on the forum as well, and try to start doing that on a more regular basis. Um, so. I guess that's our show for today. So we'd like to thank everybody for tuning in. Thanks to our chat participants uh, and to Zoya for having that segment ready for us. Um, And be sure to tune in to the other two shows on the SOT Radio Network, The Truth Perspective, uh, tomorrow at 2 p.m. Eastern and Behind the Headlines on Sunday, also at 2 p.m. Eastern time. So have a great week, everybody, and we will see you next Friday. Bye, everybody. Bye, everybody. Bye, guys. Bye, guys.